I had a message to give for, that I was working on at one time, and I changed that message. But God has given me an, another message that I'd like to share with you this morning. And I want to read for you and with you if you have uh, your Bibles, and it will be posted on the wall. I brought my Bible to read it uh, out of the Bible, the King James Version, but when I, I have the, the red letter edition, and when I opened the Bible down there with the red letter edition, uh, being colorblind, I, I saw those letters blending in with the pages, and I said, there's no point in me even trying to read that red letter edition up here, because I'd already stood up here earlier so they could check the mic, and I knew it wouldn't work. So I, fortunately, I did put it in my notes, so I, I want to read with you the, uh, the f first 10 verses of Matthew, the fifth chapter. We're going to do all 16, but I'm going to hold the others for later on. So if you have your Bibles, and if it's on the wall, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came and come un came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they shall, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible tells us that Jesus began his public ministry when he was approximately 30 years old. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, one of his first major things that Jesus did was to address a large gathering of followers. This beloved and well-known message is considered by many to be the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave. And because he spoke these words on the mountaintop or on the mountainside, this message has gone down in history as known as the Sermon on the Mount. On this mountaintop, there were basically two groups of individuals present. So hear this. You had the multitude that was gathered around, many of them because of personal needs, some perhaps needing to be fed, some desiring to be healed from some form of disease or unclean spirit, others possibly needing the demon cast out of them. The Bible even goes on to, as far, to say as far as some of these people were lunatics. Also on this mountain, you have the 12 disciples whom Jesus had recently selected and who he later called his apostles because he would personally train them to be witnesses of him. Although this message was given in verse 3 through 10, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Collectively, these eight verses have gone down in history as known as the Beatitudes. And I think most of you have heard that. Some scholars say that in these eight verses, or the Beatitudes, that Jesus was speaking in generalities to everyone who was gathered there, which consisted of most of the chosen disciples, but also in this crowd, this gathering, were farmers, fishermen, merchants, carpenters, bricklayers, their wives, and their children. They were what we would call today ordinary people. But following the Beatitudes, we see in verses 11 through 16 that Jesus issues a challenge or a mandate. And here, some scholars say he was speaking more directly to his 12 apostles because he knew that he had a message 
for them. But he also knew that he was going to be sending them out. Mark says, sending them out to preach. So after Jesus finishes his message and addressing everyone on the mountainside with those Beatitudes, I'm envisioning Jesus turning to his disciples. And I think we are going to switch. I envision Jesus looking at these 12 disciples standing there. And he says to them, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus concludes this sermon by telling his apostles that they will be blessed, that they're going to receive great rewards in heaven, and that they're going to be the salt and the light of the earth, but at a cost. Most of you understand pretty clear what it means when he says you are the light of the world and let your light so shine. But I want to speak to you today and hopefully share some light on what Jesus meant when he said to them, ye are the salt of the earth. Father, thank you for this beautiful, blessed day. This is a day that you made and you gave it to us and we will rejoice and we will certainly be glad. Because it's our understanding, Lord, that you didn't have to do that. But for whatever reason, you woke us up this morning, started us on another day. Thank you for the opportunity and privilege you've given me to speak to your people and give them what you have given me. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was reading and studying these words of Jesus, again, I envisioned in my mind that these folks were a little confused as to what they had just heard, these apostles. First of all, you think of who these 12 men are. Several of them are fishermen. One or more is a politician. Another is a tax collector. Some, no doubt, uneducated. One of them was even the eventual traitor. There's no record of any of these fellows being a lead group. Or famous. And if you know the story, well, just a few days ago, several of them were told and asked to leave their homes, leave their families, leave their occupations, and follow him. And they would become fishers of men, whatever that meant. And now he tells them, besides being fishers of men, they are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And not only that, he tells them that they're going to be treated with contempt, falsely accused, and possibly persecuted or killed. But if they can handle the pressure, they will be blessed. He tells them all of this in the same breath. I wouldn't be surprised if these 12 men didn't look at each other and say, what, what have we gotten ourselves into? persecuted, killed, fishers of men. We don't even understand this. But he has told us all of this. And not only that, he said, but we can be blessed. How can we 12 men 
possibly change the world. As I was studying and reading, I, I was trying to work, as I was working on the message, I, I was reading probably the NIV, and, and I had, you are the salt, and you are the light. And I went to the King James, and it said, ye are the salt of the earth. And so I scrolled down, and I went to eight different translations, all pretty modern. And only two of the eight said, ye, one of them being King James. And it being basically the oldest of those, I said, well, let me pursue that just a little further then. Ye are the light, since the original from them is ye are the light. And I looked it up, and I found where it said that in the Greek, in light of these verses and several more, in the Greek, the word ye, they call it a pronoun, means you alone. Y-O-U-A-L-O-N-E. You alone. So when Jesus was saying to these apostles, blessed are ye. Ye are the light of the world. Ye are the salt of the earth. Out of all of my disciples and all the people on the face of this earth, I have chosen you 12, you alone, to be the salt and the light of the world. They didn't know it at that time, but what a great compliment. What an awesome responsibility that was set before these 12 men who were chosen to be to the world a witness. And as I began to read, and I when I went to the book of Deuteronomy in the seventh verse, I believe, chapter, where God said, yeah, and you know the story where he told the children of Israel. He says, I'm going to send you to the promised land, a land of milk and honey. And you are going to face, in that time, seven nations, seven of them. And you are to destroy their altars and everything that is sacrilegious, everything that is not what I want it to be, destroy it. He said, they will not fear because I, God said, don't fear because I will be with you. And I want to tell you why he said, you must do that. And in Deuteronomy 7 and 6, he says to them, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all the people that are upon the face of this earth, you Israel, you alone, have I chosen you to be my people. And then the words of Apostle Peter comes to mind in 1 Peter 2 and 9 when he's talking to a group of Jewish believers. And he says to them, but ye, you alone, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You alone. And so when I began to process that, and I looked at what God said to the Israelites in the desert, when I saw what Peter said to the Jewish believers, and when I saw what Jesus said to those 12 disciples, it tells us that we, as believers in Christ, were chosen, were royal, were special. And we're special because God chose us before the foundation of the world to be his possession. We're special because we belong to a God who has transformed us and called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. We alone 
have been called to be the salt of the earth. And when we read this verse, ye are the salt of the earth, in order to understand this statement, we must first understand the implications of the world. In other words, what was the world like when Jesus made this statement to these apostles? What kind of world was existing at that time? Well, I can tell you what kind it was. It was a fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, that was called the fall. And this world has been falling ever since because sin abounds. Sin abounds, and world, this world has been falling ever since that day. The tendency of the world is toward that which is evil and that which is bad. The world is corrupt and offensive. It is polluted, decaying, fallen, dying. In the sixth chapter of Genesis, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he repented the Lord, he was sorry, that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved him and his heart. And this is the condition of the earth just before the flood. Then the book of Psalms tells us, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men, and if there are any, to see if there are anyone who understands, who seeks God, all have turned aside. They have all together become corrupt, and there is no one who does good, not even one. And these are the conditions of the earth, the world after the flood. And when you think about it, and you know your Bible, after the flood, how many people did we have? How many? Eight. That was all that was left. And from eight people, when David wrote this Psalms, or whoever wrote this Psalms, he is saying then there's no one who likes God. And you know what? When, when Christ talked about being the salt, he wasn't even around at that time. And he makes this statement to these disciples on the mountaintop. Why salt? What's so important about salt? Why not tell his apostles that they are a ruby or a diamond or a pearl, silver, gold, something that is valuable? What was, what's with this little fine crystal powder stuff that he says, you are, you alone are the salt of the earth? Well, once again, in order to understand about the earth, and why Jesus spoke of it then, we must understand why he said salt instead of those others. The salt that today we look at salt and we don't think much about it. Probably most of you poured some salt on whatever this morning. Bacon and eggs, maybe a pancake or two or something on it. But we don't pay attention to salt. It's, it's a natural thing probably in, in, every, in every cupboard. But the salt that Jesus spoke of was different from what we see today. The salt used in the ancient world was either mined from the salt cliffs along the Dead Sea or it evaporated from the waters of the Dead Sea. Either way, it was always filled with minerals. Why salt? And you have to, excuse me, I keep wanting to put my hand like this in my pocket, but I, I don't want to do that. First of all, salt's valuable. In numerous ways, the disciples could relate to salt. Because in those days, salt represented a valuable commodity. 
Although most of them could not have understood Jesus' full meaning, they knew he was saying to them that they were extremely valuable and an important function in the world. Whatever else it meant and had represented, salt always stood for high value. Just to name a few. In the Old Testament, God prescribed all, that all sacrificial offerings in Israel were to be offered with salt. In Leviticus 2 and 13, God says to Israel, And every oblation of the meat offering thou shalt season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of God to be lacking from any meat offering. With all, all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. In many ancient societies, salt was used as a marking for friendship. For two persons to share salt indicated a mutual responsibility to look after one another's welfare. Salt was frequently used in the ancient Near East countries to bind a covenant. Somewhat in a way an agreement or contract is notarized in our day. When parties to a covenant ate salt together, witness, they were, witnesses were there to bind that special event. Oftentimes, salt was used as a medium of exchange. Bartering and deals were made with salt as a means of payment by the many of the poor people who didn't have any money. And finally, in the even ancient Roman Empire, it was not unusual for the Roman soldiers to be paid their salaries in salt. In fact, the Latin word salarium is our word today for salary. Why salt? Because salt also creates a thirst. Think about the last time you ate something that was well seasoned or spicy. Along with Enjoying the meal, you probably had a couple glasses of water to kind of flush it down because of the thirst. Usually, something spicy increases a person's thirst. As salt, we have the wonderful opportunity to promote a spiritual thirst in this world. When we take the call of Jesus seriously, when the world sees how we talk right, how we act right, how we live right, when they see that believers in Jesus Christ can go through trials with joy and without complaining, when they see that we are content instead of constantly dissatisfied, when, they, when we bless instead of curse our enemies, and yes, many of them are mentally and physically suffering willingly for Christ, it demonstrates to these people a thirst and hopefully, prayerfully, draws them to Christ. When we live as the word of God says we should live, people, people around us will notice that there's something different, something different about us. And they oftentimes are drawn to us by our actions and responses and our words. Salt is also a flavor enhancer or a seasoner. Just as salt has a positive influence on the flavor of food at seasons, as salt, we are so live our lives that we bring out the best in those around us. And we do this by reflecting the flavor of who Jesus is. Just as many foods are tasteless without salt, the world is drab and tasteless without the presence of Christians. What the world believes, real life and real living, is only a substitute for the real thing, just like the substitute salt is an imitation. How do we season? We do this by enhancing the flavor or the quality of life in this world, by seasoning it with integrity and goodness and compassion and love and forgiveness and honesty and morals and truth and righteousness. You alone, you alone possess those qualities. The world doesn't possess those qualities. You alone. We season by helping people see that there is an alternative to the constant downward spiral of despair. 
That's the reason why many people commit suicide, because they can't see their way out. I'm reminded of a young man who was on my track team when I was at Woodward Park, Rick Steer. In my office one day, gone the next day. Went right down here to Epworth United Methodist Church. Packed something in the tailpipe, and he took his life. 13 years old, because he didn't see his way out. Didn't tell his mother, didn't tell his father. I was sitting in my office at Northland when the young man came in. We sat there and we talked. I didn't even know he had a problem. Then I found out that next day he went over to a, on the west side and did the identical thing that Rick did to himself. He wrote a letter, not to his mother, not to his father, not to his sisters, not to his brothers. He wrote his letter to his Latin teacher, expressed his sorrow and his problem to his Latin teacher. The world out there needs to know that there's an alternative to that. And we create that thirst and we flavor this world for those folks so they don't do that. They need to know what Jesus means when he says, I come that you might have life and have that more abundantly. They need to know what Jesus means when he says, or Peter, there is no other way and there's no other name given under heaven, whereby man must be saved. Believers believing under the, living under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in the obedience to the Christ will inevitably influence the world for the good. Where there is strife, we are to be peacemakers. Where there is sorrow, we are to be the ministers of Christ, binding the wounds. And when and where we see hatred and evil continually on display. And that's something that we see on the rise almost every day on, on the rise. I, I, I recall when the situation happened at Sandy Hook Elementary, 20-some folks were killed by this young man who first shot his mother, and then he went over to the school and shot the teachers and the kids. And when the mayor took that microphone, I still remember it, the first thing he said was, evil has visited our city today. And I said, you know, he's right. But evil had visited someone else's city yesterday and this morning. And he's still doing it. Every day, evil is visiting somewhere. But that's our job. We are not to choose sides and join in when we see these things on the rise. But we are to exemplify the love of God in Christ, returning good for evil. As the salt of the earth, the purpose, our purpose, is to bring a taste of heaven to earth wherever we go. God's people are chosen not for their own comfort, but to show men the beauty of divine life. You alone, you alone have been chosen to season the world. It might not even be a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Just, just looking at you on the job, wherever you might be, they will notice a difference just in how you conduct yourself. The fourth and final quality of the salt, as far as what I have today, we live, in, we live in a day of refrigerators and processed foods. So salt used as a preservative today doesn't mean as much as it did then. But when Jesus preached his sermon, when he mentioned salt, everyone, including those Roman soldiers who no doubt were standing guard to make sure that there was no problems, Everyone knew that salt as a preservative was one of the greatest values of that. 
So it was important for man's survival because it was the only methods that they had to preserve their meat and to keep it from spoiling in the desert heat. They couldn't go to Best Buy. They couldn't go to Home Depot and Lowe's to buy a refrigerator or a freezer. They had to process it themselves with salt. I remember when, when I was a, probably not even a teenager, but one, one day during the Christmas holiday in December, we went to the front door and there was this big box. Didn't know what it was, didn't know where it came from. In those days, it wasn't UPS and FedEx and all those kinds of things. It was just a big box sitting there. And we took it in the house, and we opened it. And some of you probably know what I'm talking about, but we, it was wrapped in there in all this newspaper was this huge piece of meat. And I, they call it, I think, the shank of a hog. And my uncle sent it to us from uh, North Carolina because he raised hogs. And we were curious as to what, really, what this thing was and, and what part of the animal. We knew it was some kind of animal. But the other thing we knew was it was probably the saltiest thing that you'll ever taste because that's what they do. They, they soak it in salt and other spices. And when they do that, that's their processing. I'm, and I'm talking about them, but I'm also talking about the ancient times. And you could take that and hang it outside. But most of them probably hung it inside. But you could hang that, and it would, you could have that for days because all of what that salt did to that. And that's what these folks had to do. Although they did not know it at that particular time, these 12 apostles would soon begin making their presence known to the world. And they would become an indispensable element on the earth. They would act different. They would be different than the rest of the world. As followers of Christ, their mission would be to help save and preserve the world as they knew it. And finally, verse 13 says, But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out, to be trodden under foot of men. I mentioned to you at the beginning of this message that the salt, when used in Christ's walk this earth, was different. When that salt, when that substance was exposed to the elements, or when it came into contact with the rain or the sun, besides losing its salty taste and purpose, for the most part, that salt became useless. It lost the qualities that made it valuable. And so when it is taken out and cast into the streets, into the fields, it was used much as gravel in our day. Its only purpose was to kill out weeds that it might grow. Or believe in us. But there's, an, there's often a certain respect that the world gives us. And, some, and the respect is for what we stand for. And it's for our testimony that we have and that we possess. Because our testimony tells the unbeliever who we are and what we are all about. But we can either lose our testimony or allow our testimony to become tainted by sin and the world. You ask, how can this happen? This can happen when those of us who are chosen to be different from the world become more like the world than we are like the Lord. This can happen when we stop living as good and faithful witnesses of the holiness and splendor of God. And so, instead of contributing to preserving this world from decay, we become victims of decay ourselves. And finally, this can happen when we can no longer preserve, purify, 
or seasoned the world because we have the same need of salt as they do. And we've lost what I call that thing that sets us apart from the world. And while we don't lose our salvation, we can lose our saltiness, our faithfulness, our effectiveness, our influence, and perhaps our usefulness for the Lord. And just like Jesus spoke of that salt, we've become good for nothing. And that sounds harsh, but that's what he said. Trodden out to the foot of men. In the Beatitudes, just prior to Jesus telling his apostles to be the salt and light of the world, Jesus mentioned some qualities that ought to be present in every believer. Eight times, he says, And I apologize. Eight times he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you possess these qualities. And after he tells them how blessed they are and how blessed they will be, notice what he says and what he does not say. He does not say you can be the salt of the earth. He does not say you should be the salt of the earth. He does not say, try to be the salt of the earth. He says to them, ye, you alone are at this very moment the salt of the earth. That's because being salt is not something you do. Being salt is who they were. Being salt is who we are. It's our identity. Most of us have various opinions on what we think about how we feel the situations and conditions of this world we live in should be. But I'm pretty certain that most of you would agree that we wish things were better than they are. I recall years and years ago when Pastor Sam was speaking one Sunday, and he said, things are getting so bad that I've got to get out of here. I don't know how many of you were there when he said that. But he said, things are getting so bad that I've got to get out of here. It was just a few years later, and he got out of here. He, he, was, he went home with the Lord. About 2,000 years ago, another individual was telling us about how bad things were. This apostle, Timothy, was talking to his mentor, or Paul, rather, talking to his mentor, Timothy. And Paul wrote a letter to Timothy. And he wrote this letter to tell him what was going to occur down through the years. And I want to do a little, it's not a skit, but I want to read to you what Paul wrote to Timothy but I want you to do me a favor. Would all each of you in here, would you just hold up your hands? All eight fingers and two thumbs. And I want to read what Paul wrote about this world 2,000 years ago, what to look for today. And when I read, I just want you to, when you hear something that is already here, just put down the thumb. The next one, when you hear, put down this one. And see how many you're holding up when I finish reading the letter that Paul said. Is that okay? Well, it, it must not be okay because I don't see too many hands holding up their hands. Or, there, or maybe you hold them in your lap. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Paul says to Timothy, there will be terrible times coming in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, 
proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unthankful, unholy, without love, forgiving, unforgiving, sl slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash. Now, this is just a letter he wrote 2,000 years ago. Conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of man. And I'm going to add this. He also wrote another letter. And that letter talked about men with men working that which is unseemly and women losing, losing and leaving the natural use for the unnatural. Things that have occurred in this world. Paul is saying to Timothy, he said, Timmy boy, what you see now, you can't even imagine what's going to happen and what this world's going to look like 2,000 years from now. You won't be here and I won't be here, but it's going to happen. It's happening. And as I was processing what Paul said, two words came to my mind. Those two words, climate change. We live in a world now that we are discussing climate change. There are people who say, don't worry about it. It's a hoax. People, it's just not that. You know, but we've got fires here and rain there, storm there, ice where it should be fire, fire where it should be ice, all kinds of things. But there are folks who don't believe it. And, and I'm not here to tell you to believe it or disbelieve it. I'm simply saying the climate change is taking place. And so I said, well, let me just find out what, what is the definition of climate change. And so I, I looked it up. It says climate change means a change of climate. Is it up there? Yeah. Climate change means a change of climate, namely temperature and weather, which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity that alters the composition of global atmosphere. That's the natural climate change of today. That's a natural visible climate change that we are spending. But then three words came to my mind. Spiritual climate change. Spiritual. And the Lord gave me this, these words. What is spiritual climate change, according to me anyway? A spiritual climate change means a change of climate where man is directly or indirectly through his actions or his inactions, is changing the spiritual climate on this earth and rendering it different than what Almighty God, its creator and architect, designed and purposed it to be. Now, that's my definition. There's probably a better one somewhere. But that's my definition. And, of course, there are those who agree and there are those who disagree. But my purpose in sharing this today is not to agree or disagree, nor defend or deny. But one thing is certain. A spiritual climate change is taking place in this world today. Things have changed and are changing. Conditions have changed and they're changing. Attitudes have changed and they're changing. Society has changed, and it's changing. Morals have changed, and they're changing. The spiritual atmosphere has changed, and it's changing. And lives have been changed and are changing, and more often than not, forever. But one thing that is certain, and certain forever, God's love for us has never changed. God's caring for us has never changed. And God's word to us, and you'll have to excuse me, has never and will never change. What is his word to us? I will never leave you 
or forsake you. What is his word to us? I am with you always. How long? Always. Even until the end of the world. And one of the reasons for this climate change of spiritual and behavioral change that Paul mentions, and he says it in Romans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The world is not only in the midst of a pandemic. We're also experiencing turmoil, upheaval, mayhem, somewhere throughout this world. Please excuse me, folks, you know. And each of these situations has brought constant hurt and pain and death to thousands, millions of people around this world. There's so much happening and happening so fast that a lot of people don't know what to do, what to believe, who to believe, or who to trust. And that's why the Lord tells us in Proverbs to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. But in spite of all the things that are occurring today, some of which are deplorable, some frightening, and some are very saddening. This world continues to promise you hope and peace and comfort and pleasure beyond measure. It even promises you hope. But the hope that the world provides comes with a very high price. And I believe that that's why Pastor Edward Moat was witnessing this when he looked around and he saw the conditions of the world, even in his time, in 1834, when he knelt down on his knees and he prayed and he said these words, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean, solely lean, only lean on Jesus' name. All other ground, I, I, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that's why the word tells us in John, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has done, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. It's sinking sand. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Try to imagine walking this earth and living in a world void of God's people, a world with Nothing but sinners headed to ultimate destruction. Perhaps our presence is what keeps this world going. Just like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah with those two. So ultimately, as salt, we preserve the world by proclaiming the good news and redemption and hope of Jesus Christ. Two other things came to my mind one day as I was doing this. One was a slogan. Well, they're both slogans. The first slogan was, I'm looking. No, be all that you can be. That was written by the U.S. Army in the year 1980. Some of you might have joined the service looking at that. That the armed forces, everywhere you went, there was a picture of Uncle Sam. And it said, be all that you can be. Well, God wants us to be all that we can be. We've seen enough falsehood. We've seen enough hypocrisy. We've seen enough hatred, enough chaos, enough evil. 
in this world to last us a lifetime. But he says, be all that you can be. How do you be all that you can be? By loving the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And don't forget to love your neighbor. The second slogan was by the Marines. Their slogan was in the 1970s. And their slogan was, we're looking for a few good men. We're looking for a few good men. This story came to my mind. The narrative is basically the same, but I want you to, I want to make a point. Jesus, when he was 12 and, and his parents were looking for him, and when they finally found him and said, where you been? And all those things. He said, well, don't you know I had to be about my father's business? Well, when he turned 30, he started about his father's business. And he is walking city to city. And as he's walking, he's gathering a crowd. Men and women, thousands of people following him. And he's walking, and he sees a mountain. And he begins to climb that mountain. And as he climbs that mountain, he gets to a certain height, and he stops. And he turns around, and he says, I'm looking for a few good men. crowd. Did he just say something? They hear it again. I'm looking for a few good men. What did he say? Somebody in the crowd says, I think he said he's looking for a few good men. One of the ladies in the crowd said, well, that leaves us out. I'm looking for a good few good men. So, they figure, okay, well, I qualify. So all of a sudden, the men begin to raise their hand, the volunteer. But before a hand could reach above the crowd, a voice says, Matthew, come up here. Peter, come up here. Simon, come up here. James, come up here. Bring your brother John. Peter, come up here. Bring your brother, Andrew. Matthias, come up here. Bartholomew, come up here. And they get up there, that mountain. They're standing back. Jesus, I think that's 11. Oh, yeah. Judas. Judas Iscariot, come up here. Judas, looking around, he walks up. He walks by Jesus. Jesus says, you behave yourself. I got my eye on you. <laughs> Judas goes back with the group, and he stands, and he says, mumbling, yeah, and I got my eye on you too. You know why he called those people? Those 12 out of that group? Let me read you what Jeremiah says, and then you'll understand. He says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Those 12, even though we read about them calling master fishing and all that, and the tax collector come, those 12 had already been called. They had already been chosen before they were born. And that's why he picked them, because he came for them. Them alone. What did he say in Ephesians? For he chose us in, in him before the creation of the world to be what? Holy, blameless in his sight. Throughout history, God has claimed for himself a people to be his very own. Prized possessions. It began with the Jewish nation first and then us. His, gener his chosen generation now embraces the church of Christ. 
We may be ordinary people, but God chose us to be the object of his committed favor and grace and love. Not because of our worthiness or self-righteousness or anything that we we have done to deserve it. He chose us out of his mercy. He chose us out of his kindness. He chose us out of his goodness. He chose us out of his love. And he chose us for his glory. And as a result, we can show others the goodness of God who called us out of darkness and to this marvelous light. And as the earth, salt of the earth, we need to be about the business of purifying, preserving, and seasoning so that the Lord can use our lives and our testimonies for his glory. The, the world's corruption would not be retarded and his darkness would not be illuminated unless God's people are salt and light. We are the most important people walking this earth. The very ones who are despised and persecuted by this world, and it's on their eyes, are the world's only hope. The you alone in those verses that I read, it's plural. It is his whole body, the church, that is called to be the world's salt and light. Each individual grain of salt has its own influence, but collectively, we can win the war. So while you are passing through this world, in the midst of all that around, that is around, and all that surrounds you, don't get caught up in the crazy stuff, as I wrote, that's going on. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your faithfulness. Don't lose your effectiveness. Don't lose your usefulness. Don't lose your testimony. Have you ever been to the driving on the freeway and you get pulled over by the police officer or highway patrol and, you know, you're driving down, let's just say 71 and you probably going a little faster than you should, and you pass the police highway, and you pass by, and you're just cruising, and you kind of look back to see if he's still where he was. And he's still there, so you're feeling pretty good. But, uh, you, you know, and you're just tempted to look again. So you look back. This time, he's actually coming. But so you're over here, and he's over there, so you think you're good. And all of a sudden, he's look again, and the lights are flashing. Lights are flashing, but you're just cruising along because he, he can't possibly be after me. Well, the next time you look, he's in, he is in your lane. And after a while, not only is he in your lane, there's no cars between you and him. And so you figure, well, you know what? I, I think I better pull over. So he, you stop, and he stops, and he gets out, and he comes over to you. And he says, and this part I'm just sort of facetiously, facetiously rather. He says to you, I need your driver's license, insurance, registration. And you say, but sir, my name is uh, Mr. Uh, Robert Sands. He said, do I stutter? I need your driver's license, your insurance, and your registration. Okay, okay. so then you're fumbling because now you, now you know you're in trouble because he didn't like what you just said. So you find all of that, and he takes it. And he goes back to his car, and he's sitting there, and you're wondering what is going to happen. What is he going to do? And what does he want to know? And he gets on his radio, and he, and he gets all this information. And then he comes back, and he gives you your information. And he actually just says to you, do you think you can slow down? And you say, yes, sir, I promise I will and you drive off. The point I'm making is, he asked for driver's license, insurance, registration, because that's what he needs to find out who you are. He needed your identity. He needed to know this person that I pulled over, you know, do they already have speeding tickets they didn't pay for? Are they running from the law? You know, are they what all kind of, is he a bank robber? Did they just do something? He needs all that information. He needs an identity. He doesn't, 
your name right there at that point is not important to him. Not important to him. But he needed the identity. He needed to know that. But one thing about it, I want you to know, he, he didn't want her name, but you're more than a name. You are more than a name. And not only that, you have an identity. What is that identity? All true believers are chosen. We make one family. We're the body of people distinct from the world. We follow a different principle and practice than the world because we are consecrated and devoted to God and acceptable to him through his son, Jesus Christ, who has called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. In these trying times, and they're trying, and difficult times, let us not lose or jeopardize our identity, regardless of what's happening around us in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our states, in our nation, in our world. Don't lose it because, because in God's eyes, We're neither black or white. We're neither red, yellow, brown. We're neither Protestant or Catholic. We're neither Jew, Muslim, Gentile. We're neither left-wing or right-wing. We're neither liberal or conservative. We're neither Democrat or Republican. In God's eyes, in his eyes, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and like those 12 apostles, we're on a mission passing through this world. And you alone, and only you, can make a difference. I read once where someone said the salvation of the wicked is in the prayers of the saints. So I close, and I'm sure you're ready. And so I close with this caption that has been one of my favorites since I can remember. It was written by the French-American Quaker missionary in 1855. And it was written for you alone. Would you read this with me if I get to see it up there? There we go. Nope. Nope. Well, I guess I'll have to read it. I will read it. If it, if it happens, let me know. <laughs> it says... I shall not pass through this world. Well, I'm still going to read it, but thank you. <laughs> read it with me. I shall not pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that I can do, or any kindness that I can show to any fellow creature, let me do it now. Let me not defer nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again because I am the salt of the earth. Father, thank you for being the salt of the earth, for the message that you gave me to give to your people. I pray, Lord, that you will bless us, that you will strengthen us, that you encourage us each and every day. These are difficult times. People are doing all kinds of damnable things, evil things, unworthy things. Help us not to do that to each other. People are putting each other on trial. Help us not to put each other on trial. I am my brother's keeper, and I want to keep my brother. And I thank you, and I pray your blessings on this day as we continue and pray that we always be and remain the salt of the earth. God bless each of you. challenge.
You, you can't change the world, but you can change your world. You can salt your world. Today. You can do it today. It's not rocket science. It's within our grasp. Don't look to Washington. Don't look to the economy. Don't look to other people. Don't look to other church, other Christians. Just look in the mirror. Say, God, use me. Amen? Use me. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Appreciate it so much. Let, let me just let me just close our time with a blessing. Would you just extend your hand towards heaven if you if you'd like to do that? May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you of his peace as you walk out with him day by day, being the salt of the earth for his glory. Amen. God bless you.